Hello, New Disruptors listener. The following interview with Marco Arment was so thorough, we've split it into two pieces, each about an hour. We'll air the second part soon. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks you to take this pile of tinker toys and assemble your business model. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Marco Arment has had two main acts in his life so far. As an early developer with Tumblr, he helped create a service that changed the fundamental nature of blogging by introducing both an ease of creating sites and social networking. While he was still there, he toyed with a service that would let him read web pages offline without any formatting. And that became Instapaper, which eventually, in about 2010, became his full-time job. So Marco is on the show this week. He's a successful podcaster, so he's got the right mic set up. We sound terrific. He's the editorial director of the magazine, the best publication ever created. And he's also my boss. So let's see if I remain employed by the end of the podcast. Hello, Marco. You know, every time I have to uh, tell somebody my title at the magazine, I have to go to the website to look it up. (laughs) I've been called managing editor, editor... It's, uh, well, the, you know, the intent is that maybe someday we'll have multiple titles. You know, that's the editorial director oversees multiple titles. So this could be the first. I've just, I've gone so long without having a meaningful title. In fact, I've, in my entire career, I've never had a meaningful title. Uh, really? That, you know, if my first title was software engineer, um, but that's, you know, every programmer gets that title. Uh, and then at Tumblr, I was lead developer, but I wasn't leading anybody else. <laughs> So and and in fact, David was telling me what I should be working on because so, he was the boss. So, uh, so I, it was, there's just the two of you there for the early days, right? Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, and this is you know, so we we're talking about 2006, and of course, blogging had been around for years. There was a lot of software out there. Facebook wasn't really a presence. Like social, other kinds of social networks hadn't really gotten anywhere. There were not a lot of ways people connected except maybe in some business sites and things, but it was still pretty nascent. And uh, I thought one of the things that Tumblr brought was it was really easy to create a site, which if I remember right, right, it's, you know, not that long ago, but 2006, I feel like the average person couldn't create a blog that was easy to run and maintain and post media to. Was that part of the intent of Tumblr is to let people just be able to post really without any friction? Exactly. And, and, you know, what the environment was back then uh, for, for free hosting and for low effort hosting basically had yourname.wordpress.org or yourname.blogspot.com. And you had the predefined themes. You couldn't edit your theme at all. You, d- you couldn't have your own domain name or anything pointing to it. And that, that was basically your free option. So Tumblr came out and right at the beginning, we offered you domain hosting. You could just point your domain right at us and you wouldn't have a .tumblr.com in there if you didn't want it. And you had full control over the entire HTML and JavaScript of the page. So, and then we combine that with just that, you know, the ease of posting that blogs traditionally were these kind of like long magazine column-like things. And we, we all knew people, ourselves included, who had started at abandoned blogs because it felt like we needed to put more effort into them than what we were willing to put into them. And then you, you'd spend hours writing a, a magazine-length column for your blog every day or every week, and then you'd get, like, three comments. Two of them were spammers. Like <laughs> it, was, it was a hungry maw. The, blo- the blog is always a maw that needs to be filled, because exactly. if you don't, the more days that go by, suddenly it's not a blog anymore. It's just an abandoned site. Right. And and what we found was that with with Tumblr, we, we, 
we created this idea of tumble well actually we didn't create the original idea of tumble logs but we were the first platform to uh to make it easy to make one and uh our goal was to not only make it easy to post you know as easy as possible to post things and, and the bookmarklet helped a lot there you know not only to make that as easy as possible but also to reduce the um that level of guilt or like self-imposed expectations of what each post needed to, needed to be. You know, we didn't want you to think that every post had to be an article. You know, it, it, we wanted it to just be all right. You want to share like one funny picture you found or a quick link? Go ahead. You know, it doesn't have to be anything big. And so by making it easy and by making the medium kind of expect quick, frequent posting rather than once a day long magazine columns, we encouraged people into posting a lot every day. And it really, it really stuck with people. I mean, people, it was that ease of just like, I have a picture and I want to put it up or I spotted something or a headline or a quote. And, and even that was the reblogging thing in there from the beginning. Cause that seems like a powerful way to amplify content across the network too. Uh, it wasn't there in the beginning. In fact, the mm. entire dashboard and the whole following system were, were not there in the beginning either. Um, it was so they were all freestanding sites initially. Exactly, it was just a publishing tool at first, and and we, and we and we added the dashboard and reblogging and the following system uh, pretty early on. I think it was maybe a year in, off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, the very first version did not have any of those things. Because that seems like one of the powerful things that Tumblr still has is that there's uh, it's kind of a. I mean, it is a social network. I mean, because you're following people, you can track things, and you're identified as sort of an entity in the system uh, when you, you know, reblog or comment or like something. But it does seem to me that it's loosely federated as opposed to something that's strongly federated like uh, Facebook or that requires a lot of attention like Twitter. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, so it's ca- casual. Exactly. And, you know, it lets you just kind of I – mean, and Twitter has has attempted this too to to communicate to people like – we don't want you to feel like you need to follow every tweet in your timeline. Uh, and that's why they don't do things like position syncing features for how far you've read in your timeline. It's, it's explicitly a decision not to have those because they don't want that, that guilt associated with not keeping up Tumblr. Um, I, I don't think Tumblr actively prohibits that, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, Tumblr is made to be the same way where like, you know, you aren't, you aren't meant to have to read everything. And I, and I don't think most people do read everything. But I forget that's one of the views is, I mean, you can go to a Tumblr blog, like a page, and you just, or you can RSS follow someone, or you can just look at a site, but then that dashboard lets you see it like a stream of things that's coming across, just, just like something like a Twitter, but richer, with richer media. Exactly. I, I think, you know, Twitter makes it hard to, uh, to get linked into it. And I don't mean LinkedIn, like the blog site uh, or like the, uh, the spam site. I mean, uh, you know, like Twitter, it's hard to have somebody send you a link to a Twitter conversation and have that page make sense to you. Yeah. Um, and so Twitter is, you know, while, while it is many things, it, it is also very inaccessible to newcomers or to people who just weren't involved in, in a particular conversation. So with Tumblr, we tried to make, we tried to kind of flip that over and, and Twitter wasn't actually that big when we started it, but you know, we saw as Twitter grew, uh, we kind of learned a lot of, a lot of lessons from it. And we saw, we need to make the blogs their own thing. Like we need to make the external view of this as useful as we can, not just the internal view. So Tumblr's always been this kind of weird two headed beast of, the dashboard and all the social interaction that's happening there and the front facing blogs, which are these own, this whole 
other view of what's happening on the service and and like you can make a blog that doesn't have any of that social interaction on the dashboard or you can have an account that interacts a lot on the dashboard and the blog template is just one of the default templates and nobody ever looks at it. Well, that's fascinating too. And, and Tumblr never owned people the way that Facebook and Twitter try to own people or the experience. It's sort of, it's uh, it's kind of its own thing, but everyone's site is their own property. I guess I'd say there's not like a layer of Tumblr that comes in and tries to appropriate what people create within it. Correct. And, and that, that, that was always very important to us. Uh, you know, we could see, that Facebook and and MySpace actually back then and many of these new massive social networks they basically took over your identity and and especially you know MySpace at least allowed you to inject random HTML and and tweak the theme quite a lot uh, to to many uh, good and bad effects but you know Facebook was getting bigger at that same time and and we could see with Facebook that it was just very like sterile template environment where your identity is not you. Your identity is Facebook slash you. Mm-hmm. And, and it was very much like, you know, Facebook was what you were looking at. You weren't looking at this person's site. And so we created a platform that we wanted. And neither David nor I used Facebook much. And, and you know, we created a platform that we wanted, which is something that would give us our identity and just be a publishing tool. And then slowly added social features without compromising that. It's when I look at Kickstarter, that's been something I liked about it since they started. And every conversation I've had with the company, uh, they have never wanted, and we'll see what happens. I mean, they're bigger and bigger, but the same people who found it are still involved. And as it's grown, and their thing was they didn't want to take over the identity of each project. They want each project to almost be a site inside. And I, and I think they even want it. I hope they're going to do more, but they think they plan to do more so that when you set up a Kickstarter project, that's your community. And then now, you know, for now, for quite a while, you can link in Facebook and Twitter. You can connect both as a project manager and as somebody who contributes. But I felt like that was important for them is that people trusted them in a way they might not trust someone else because like Tumblr, they weren't trying to hijack me. So I'm a Kickstarter backer and hey, here's some Kickstarter projects. Like, no, here's the thing I came for. And by the way, there's some other things that you might like as well. And, and Tumblr did that and does that as well, that it helps you find other things. And by, by setting it up that way to not try to take over identity more than you need to, it changes who you attract and what your user base is. Like Facebook basically is mostly populated by, well, by everybody at this point. But, you know, <laughs> you know on Facebook, you use Facebook if you define yourself by who your friends are and where you went to school. And you you can use something else if you want to define yourself in other ways. And so we found Tumblr, you know, because it had both this lightweight identity structure and didn't ask for your real name and let you customize the theme and let you host on your own domain and everything, uh, we were extremely well adopted early on by creative people, by artists, by photographers, by writers, people who, who wanted to be creative and express themselves more than just, here's a list of my friends. It's funny because I think that uh, we're seeing more of that now, even though it's taken this many years to get to that, those, that where it's facilitation as opposed to hijacking or, or appropriation. Right. And, and that's, I mean, you know, Tumblr gets, it comes in for a lot of criticism, I think, uh, because of how some people choose to use it. And like with blogs, a lot of mainstream or even sometimes specialized reporting likes to look at Tumblr monolithically. I remember when blogs first came out and you'd read these ridiculous things in the newspaper. I I was writing for newspapers then and I would try to counter these with more sensible pieces. But they would say blogs are only, uh, you know, Japanese girls writing about manga or whatever. You know, they would just say blogs are, blogs are live journal. And I feel like Tumblr still even – 
years into it and however many millions of users and millions of, of Tumblr blogs that it still has that same sense uh, that it's that people don't can't wrap their hands around it since it's so big so they tend to characterize it as one kind of thing instead of realizing that it facilitates any kind of thing. Exactly. You know, people would often say like, oh, you know, Tumblr is really, you know, there's a lot, lot of drama on Tumblr today or Tumblr is really, you know, into this right now and you know, like any social service, it's all about who you're following. And so people would conflate who they're following with the whole service. And, and of course, you know, that's that problem. You know, if, if they don't like who they're following, that problem can be solved by changing who they're following, but they don't often realize that. Yeah. And we can read that about Twitter today as people say Twitter is a morass of stupidity and whatever. I'm like, who are you following? Exactly. It's like, yes, you can find, you can find stupidity on Twitter. You can also find lots of great stuff on Twitter. Oh my God. Yeah. It's just a variety of people. I, I don't know. There's a ten- tendency of reductionism for people who who I think often aren't technologically oriented. Like that's that mindset is when you're, you know, it's a incredible gross characterization, but I find people who have a little bit of technical knowledge or a little bit of computer understanding tend to accept the fact that there's much more diversity online than people who approach it as like an anthropologist or who just look at it. And it's like every site is like kind of daunting to them, even if they've been using the web for you know 15 years, you get that like almost like, do you see that cultural split that, it's you hear people talk about like, even about you personally or about some aspect of the internet. And you're like, I I don't even recognize that. Oh yeah, and I think it is. It might be. I don't know if it's generational or if it's just whether you're into computers or not. Like you know, I see the way most members of my family use the internet, which really means use Facebook, and the idea of of following or friending someone who they don't know, like they would that would never even cross their mind. Like they actually have. You know, like in in the uh, in today's episode of of my accidental tech podcast, we talked about this briefly. <laughs> how like you know Facebook, Facebook considers people you know and people whose content you want to follow online to be the same set. And if that's not true for you, which for geeks like us it usually isn't, it doesn't really fit very well. But for most people, uh, they don't make that distinction. You know, most people like when my mom uses Facebook, she wants to see posts by people she knows in real life. That's who she's chosen to follow. And the idea of, you know, going and finding a special interest group or, or a topical site and following that, in addition, uh, that, that never enters her mind as something she can do on the internet. It's so fascinating. And it, I mean, some of it is generational and some of it is just uh, like brain functioning, like how you model people around you. Um, I've, I've mentioned my mother-in-law before, who I love dearly and is a wonderful person and uh, worked in early childhood development for 30 plus years in her career. She's used a Macintosh for 20 something years. And I swear she does not know how to use it. <laughs> I watch her use the computer as, as if she'd barely ever touched one before every time she sits down. But I think it's a, I think it's a modeling thing about how the computer interacts with how she views the world. And it's completely foreign and external to her where for folks like us, it's part of our, it's an extension of ourselves. And it's just a tool we use like a hammer. We're like, you wouldn't look at a hammer and go, what can I use this for? You look at it like, I can probably pound things with it. And I, computer is just, I reach out and grab what I need online. Exactly. That's funny. But I think, so the theme with Tumblr, so we talked about Tumblr first, even though you've been out of there for, uh, since 2010, when you were at Tumblr, that was the last job you've had where you worked for someone else, right? <laughs> so you've been... On your own now since. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, I know it's only three years, but it's still, it's, uh, there's so many things that you've done. And I think, um, we were talking before the podcast about this notion of trying things and Instapaper. And the second thing is we were just talking about in regards to Tumblr about you made software that let you make sites in a structure the way that you and David wanted 
it to work because something like that didn't exist. Instapaper, what itch did that scratch for you? Or what what itch did that scratch for you when um, you started developing that while you were still at Instapaper? Tumblr. I mean, still at Tumblr, (laughs) sorry. It was really quite simple. It was that I I had a train commute every day and I would find stories on – like the the first version of Dig, to give you an idea of when this was and <laughs> what the environment was back then, uh, I would find stories in my RSS reader, which is about to become an antiquated thing, and, <laughs> and the first version of Dig, and I would find these things during the day and, uh, and, and not really have a lot of time to read them if I wasn't trying to be a slacker all day. And which was occasionally the case, but you know, huh. <laughs> yeah. And, and at the same time, I had this train commute and I just gotten this iPhone, um, but I couldn't, like on the train, you know, with the first generation iPhone using Edge, uh, it was pretty hard to browse the web much. You know, you could you could load a page here or there, but it, you know, it just wasn't that fast, and the reception wasn't very good in the train uh, tunnels and train areas. So it wasn't very convenient to browse. And if I did have time to browse in the train, I had already browsed everything for the day by that point. Like, you know, by six p.m. I'd already browsed all the RSS feeds, seen all the popular stories for the day. And so I had this disconnect of an oversupply of stuff to read during the workday and an undersupply of stuff to read during my commute home. So I uh, made Instapaper to basically flip that and to just be this temporary buffer, uh, this temporary queue of stuff I found during the day that I want to read on the way home. Do I remember that you, at some point, did you open it as like a private beta to people you knew? It wasn't a product, but other people were, were you let other people poke around at it? Yes, I, I did that. I, I made the very first basic version with just like the bookmarklet and the list and the archive, uh, which was at, at that time just called Mark as Red. <laughs> you know, just like, you know, the bookmarklet, login system and, and list, basically. I made all that in like November of 06. And then I didn't open it up to everyone else. Oh, wait, no, it was 07 because the iPhone was out. Sorry. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> November yeah. 07. It was like a month after I got the iPhone. All right, so November 07, I did this. And then, uh, sorry, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're, we're talking about we can't remember events of six years ago. That's, That's pretty sad, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, November 06, I started making this thing, gave it to a few friends, and then I was just using it. And then in early January 07, or 08, oh my God. <laughs> in early January 08, uh, a few months in, I was talking to a couple of the friends who I, who I told this to, and they're like, oh, my God, I can't live without this. This is great. And, and I, I was finding the same thing. I loved using it every day, but I just, you know, I didn't really think much about releasing it. And so one day I just, in late January 08, I just posted a link on my blog saying, hey, here's this thing I've been working on. Uh, feel free to use it if you want to. Oh, my God. And it just exploded from there. It's so funny when the confluence of ideas comes together. Like when you were talking about Tumblr just a few minutes ago, I was thinking that, you know, it's useful on its own. I know that usage grew when it was uh, launched in 2007. It, you know, it took off. There was a ton of usage because of simplicity and that thing about as, an, as a way to start a specialized blog. Like there had a lot of factors for that. But then you get not very far further along and then suddenly the smartphone explosion starting with the iPhone of usable devices that can take decent pictures and upload them and, and 3G networking really – 2007 was the year of the switchover for there where you started in the United States at least to match the speeds that had already been in Europe and suddenly you could get, you know, several hundred kilobits per second upstream, oh my god as opposed to, you know, 20 to maybe 100 kilobits per second upstream. So, same thing with Instapaper it seems to me, you hit that perfect point where suddenly tons of people have devices everyone already has a commute and network connections, you're already being frustrated by it, right? That's one of your points, that the edge connection didn't work the way you needed it to. So you needed a like a bandwidth deferring tool, and that's 
sort of what Instabaper is. Right. And also that, you know, there were at the time, you know, the iPhone had been out for a few months, but there there really wasn't much of a concept of mobile websites yet. And mm-hmm. there certainly was no concept of responsive design. So while the iPhone, you know, it was one of the big selling points that it's great. You can browse regular websites like a desktop and, and not be restricted to WAP or any weird mobile thing. Um, that was great and all, but websites weren't optimized for mobile. So they still were assuming you had a lot of bandwidth. And so they still took a lot of long time to download. And they still had complex layouts, which took a while to render on the iPhone 1 slow CPU. And they were laid out in such a way that text columns were too wide to read comfortably on an iPhone. So you, you could zoom in and everything, but you were fixed to whatever size the iPhone attempted to make it to make it readable, which often wasn't what you wanted. And then like, you know, you'd, you'd scroll down the column and accidentally get misaligned and just f- go back and recenter yourself on the column. Like it, it was just, it worked, but it was a pretty poor experience. And, and that so, was spoiled by Retina too. Is like oh, yeah. even you know I mean that's funny. That's only two years, but it still feels like an eternity. When I look at um, we've got a, an iPhone 3GS that we use like a touch in the house, and I pick that thing up, and I, my first reaction is, "What is wrong with this?" <laughs> yeah, and then it's like, "Oh, this is what I used for two years, something at this resolution." But even that was hard, or three years. This is hard on the eyes that you've got columns you can't change, fonts that are displaying not necessarily def- the default format can support WebKit things or uh, TypeKit, and you have to rotate it and it's slow and, you know, all these things all at once. Exactly. And, and you know, Instapaper was basically created to fix all of these problems I was having at the same time. Let's take a break to thank a sponsor. I know that it seems that Squarespace is sponsoring every podcast on the internet right now, but there's a reason for that. They're trying to tell people that they have a solution that anyone can use. You don't have to be an HTML codesmith, nor do you have to master the intricacies and workarounds for content management systems when you just want to put up a good-looking and sophisticated site. You start with fine templates on Squarespace, and most of what you do is drag and drop and type. I created a blog in about 10 seconds and used its web-based editing tools to tune the type and color without having to dive into CSS. Now, if I wanted to, I could modify the CSS. They give me that option, but I don't have to to make it work the way I want. Start a podcast in a minute, post updates quickly, add galleries, the whole works. Sign up for their best deal and get a free domain and unlimited bandwidth. Their support is available 24 hours every day. You can start a trial without a credit card. Go to squarespace.com slash newdisruptors to get started. When you're ready to pay during your trial, remember this code, newdisruptors4, to get 10% off. You type that in during checkout in the offer code field. That's squarespace.com slash newdisruptors and then offer code newdisruptors4, numeral 4. Now, back to the show. Well, you talked about this at a Singleton Ado talk uh, conference last October in Montreal that I think your talk is online, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I'll link to that in the show notes. I know mine and I've referenced some before because uh, Ren talked about e-publishing and that's, there's some, it's a great conference and it's actually a free advertisement for Singleton, by the way, for people who are uh, software developers uh, or even not, but trying to think about how software is developed. That was an incredible event and they're going to do it again this fall. And you talked uh, there more technically about the issue of scaling, but there's, I think, a lot to to share that isn't on the technology side too is part of what you were telling developers was how to think about where you went from something that was a side project you had a day job and this was a side project how did you go from this announcement suddenly having tons of use and going wow okay how do i build this into something real i mean part of it was was just keeping what i was doing manageable and, and i mean that both technically and like project management wise you know because it was 
I had no plans to quit my day job. You know, for for the first um, I don't know, probably six months or so of Instapaper, it didn't even have any way to make money because this was before the App Store. So, you know, I I knew that this would always be a side project, and Tumblr was exploding. So Tumblr was taking up a lot of my time and attention. Of course, it was my full time job, and it was a startup, and it was exploding, and I was the only back end programmer on it. So, you know, it was not easy. And so I knew that I could, I would only be able to devote at most probably like four to eight hours a week to Instapaper. And so I had to build it not only, not only to be cheap to host because it didn't have any income, but to scale really well just because I didn't want to have to be woken up every morning at three in the morning to <laughs> fix some kind of weird problem that the servers were having or alternately uh, have something go wrong in the middle of my workday at Tumblr have something go wrong on Instapaper and have to awkwardly figure out how the heck to handle that. So well, That's interesting. So you had to think about this. So you had to make something that was very robust and ro- robust that it was reliable over the long term, all the decisions you made. Exactly. You know, it, I, mm. had, I had to make sure that – basically make sure there would be no surprises with Instapaper. Mm-hmm. Like keep everything that it did fairly simple, leave a lot of headroom with the hardware, you know, make sure that if I get a big spike of traffic, then you know, I'll be able to handle it okay. And also, just because I was only able to devote a few hours a week to it, I had to choose, I had to cherry pick and choose only the features that A, would have the most bang for the buck, and B, wouldn't have a long-term heavy time commitment. So, you know, you don't do a feature that's going to require you to, like, manually edit a top list of currently popular articles constantly and have moderators or everything. Cause that's, that's very human intensive. It's very time intensive. So like things like that, like I, I had to very carefully choose what I did. And so the result of that, even when I did take it full time, the result of that was a very lean, generally low needs business. And that's great. That keeps everything simple and it lets you control everything yourself. All the variables uh, are ones you set and know. <laughs> no other people involved. Did you using Amazon hosting or did you have your own servers? No, I have my own servers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, I, I have mixed feelings on cloud hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I, 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 in short, because this isn't that technical of a podcast, uh, <laughs> the short version is I think people assume that cloud hosting is the right answer in the general all-purpose case when in fact cloud hosting is ideal for a very specific case and it's priced and designed accordingly. It's Cloud hosting is designed for when you don't have anywhere near constant demands for load. Like mm-hmm. if you have roughly the same traffic every day, uh, then you don't need cloud. You, you don't need like EC2 to dynamically scale up and down your stuff. It's it's made for things like like the old video transcoding sites. Like back back before YouTube was the only one. Uh, <laughs> you know, back when you'd have like you know Vimeo and all these different sites. I know they're still around, but effective yeah. <laughs> effectively not. <laughs> and uh, you know, like. It was made for stuff like video transcoding sites where you would have periods of needing tons of CPU power and then periods of needing almost none. And that would fluctuate constantly. Like, it's great for that. And it's not really great for hosting general purpose websites most of the time. Or rather, it's 
it's not very price efficient if you want to do that. Right. That's what I've got my book price comparison site, ISBN.nu, and I have it on uh, Linode for because I need it all the time. I've got websites and databases running there, and you know they're not they're virtual servers, but they work as if I had rack mounted stuff with less hassle. But I have a Amazon EC2 instance. I fire up once a week for a few hours to run a complex database operation. I throw a ton of memory at it and a ton of cores and copy it over, and then it shuts down, and I pay you know. $4 a week for that or something. And it's great. If I had to do it on a, on a dedicated virtual machine, it would cost a lot more. But it's, but it's interesting. It's, still that, it's the on-demand thing is that I think a lot of folks I've talked to on this podcast, when they've had a software component, uh, there was a point, say, like pre-EC2 and pre-virtual private server hosting, the cost of getting into a data center or getting machines of your own on racks was relatively high and it required more technical expertise. You had that technical expertise. Most people don't. And then after that inflection point, you could start a software business and use consultants or be able to learn enough to run something that was off on a virtual machine. It's also worth pointing out that even when you have expertise to do something, it doesn't mean you should be doing it. Like, I, I could probably <laughs> figure great. out how to co-locate a server, how to you know buy my own server from Dell or whoever, and go go to some data center, rent a, a part of a rack, and and mount this in the rack, or have them do it and manage it that way. I could do all that, but I don't. Instead, I lease dedicated servers and I use Linode VPSs because uh, I, I recognize that that would be a very bad use of my time to do yeah, all those things. Yeah, you're taking a variable out of That's that, you know, you already have a baby. You don't need to be woken at 3 a.m. with a server malfunction that you have to go and take care of or hire someone remote hands to do, too. Exactly. That's part of that simplification. Uh, so Instapaper starts to build up steam and you're in a day job. This is, you know, classic dilemma is there's a point at which you say uh, uh, so you were saying the app store was part of the point that helped you make that shift but no money's coming in you figure out how to optimize this so that you can serve users what kicked you over into saying okay this should be a business that I run myself full time I was kind of forced into it really I mean what happened was Tumblr was getting so big and and I think anyone who's who's familiar with who anyone who's ever had any kind of scaling challenge large or small uh, can probably recognize this phenomenon my job at Tumblr basically evaporated. And and the reason why is because as the site was growing, I was doing so much of it myself. I was managing the servers myself. I was writing the backend code myself, all the databases and all, all that stuff. I was doing all that myself. Eventually, we hired a sysadmin uh, to take over a lot of that stuff. And man, was that a good idea. And we did it way, mm-hmm. way too late. We, we should have done it like two years earlier. You but, didn't have time to do it, though. You were working all right. the time. How did you hire and train someone to get them up to speed? Right. And so what happened was the typical, um, basically a typical load collapse, which is you're operating at like 90% capacity for a long time. And then suddenly things grow just a little bit like you know the growth just continues on the same path it's always been on but suddenly instead of needing one person you need 15 people to do the same job because it just starts collapsing and because it's just it was you know you were able to do it for a certain amount of time and then it just crossed some threshold where oh my god we need a lot more help on this one of those things too is so you're one of the people in there early i'm i mean without making any predictions or assumptions, you probably, I'm sure having a stake in the business means you're more willing to put more time into it. Then you hire people, and those people don't work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So to cover seven by 24, you need like 10 people if you need someone who's always available or always working just to cover shifts if they have to be on. Exactly. So basically, my job at Tumblr, 
I, like within the span of a few weeks, I went from thinking everything was okay and I had it and I had it handled to realizing, oh crap, this th- my job does not <laughs> exist anymore as I thought it did, and now oh it needs to. I need to become a manager of a large team. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I talked with David and, he, and, and, you know, he saw the same effect. You know, he knew this was coming too. We, we talked and, and we, both, we both knew like that was not right for me. I, I should not be managing a large team because A, I'd be very unhappy doing it because I really wanted to be building things myself. And B, uh, I didn't want to be managed by someone else doing that job. <laughs> you know, so that, that would also be uncomfortable. And then C, even if I had that job, I'm a terrible manager. <laughs> I, I mean, the only reason it works with you in the magazine is because you don't need any supervision. I am a horrible manager for anyone who needs any kind of interaction and supervision. I'm a free-range chicken. It's true. It's right. true. That's the only reason why you don't hate my guts and why you haven't quit. And so, well, yes, for the record, it's uh, yeah. That's no, it's exactly. <laughs> well, it's interesting because when we started talking, well, we'll get to more of this later. But when we started talking about me coming on as editor, you were like, "God, I don't. I've never had an employee before." And I'm like, "Really? Over all this stuff?" I'm like, yeah. I'm like, but that's that's the thing is we're independent. We're uh, uh, intersecting uh, Venn diagram circles as opposed to on you know hierarchical tables. But so so I see. So you're confronted with these problems overnight, just about pretty much. Uh, your job is going to change completely. So either you're going to be miserable and bad at it or there's no position for you it sounds right. like and, and and david and i both basically you know figured out you know it's probably best if i just leave at this point let's you know <laughs> make room for somebody else to do this job that that my job really is about to become and and that i probably should have seen coming six months ago but didn't so but so this and the time frame is so instapaper has already been on the rise so you've already got this you've been you've been uh, uh inculcating this and it's it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger right at, in your spare time exactly and so i had and that made this decision easier that I had something to fall back on. I had something else that I could be doing. So basically the reason I took Instapaper full time is not because I was making some kind of massive ballsy move. It's because my job kind of disappeared from under my feet. <laughs> and, uh, and I real cause I, I lacked the foresight to see it coming and I realized, Oh, Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess I'll have to start doing that full time and, and then I'll figure out later if I want to get another job somewhere. And I, so and I figured out later that I'm unemployable, uh, because I hate working for anybody else now. <laughs> it yeah, spoiled is, I've been, me. I've been, I've been unemployable since about 1997 when I realized I just don't, I don't want to have a boss. I mean, you're like, I say, you're hardly my boss. We have <laughs> this I'm the perfect thing. boss for you. <laughs> it's like, you're like, I don't want to have employees. Like, excellent. We found each other. But <laughs> it is, it is that funny thing that like. It's a good thing to recognize. I've managed people. When I was Amazon in 96, 97, I had a team of, I don't know, like five or six people. And I, I did leave them largely to their own devices because they were great. But it was that thing. I left there and uh, and I thought, you know, I'm not – this is not where I'm best at. And you obviously recognize your own ability. What do you want to be doing? You want to be writing code, right? This is this is the endpoint in writing and building your own systems. Exactly. And, and you know, that's why like I've, I've kept Instapaper small because – that's how I like to run this business. Like that's that's the kind of business I like to, I like to run. That's why the magazine is run the way it is, and why we don't have a staff of fifty full timers doing this. Also, we couldn't pay them, but <laughs> that's you know like that's, that didn't stop Rupert Murdoch. Oh, I guess he could pay them <laughs> other profits. Though. Right, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, because Instapaper Instapaper is you, and you have a little bit. Of help, you have an Android. Do you have someone working on an Android version? Still? Yeah, so like I've used a... contractors before. I have mm-hmm. I have a support contractor, and I have I have a deal with with another de- with another development house to do uh, and the Android app and, and to do all the maintenance on it and and support. But 
for the most part, you know, there there are no other programmers working on the core product, the you know, the website or the iOS app, and um, and in a lot of ways that hurts. You know, it it really does. And and I've thought many times, like, how the heck do I scale this? Because I really probably should hire someone, but I'm just such a terrible boss that I'm I'm just I just realize I, I know that I know that that would not end well. So that's, this is the, gets into the mythical man month problem, right? A, a little bit, which is, we talked about in a previous podcast. I've never, I've actually never read the book. I've only read the summary of it, though, which is brilliant. Is that a late project gets later the more people you add to it? Exactly. I think it's one of the summaries. I'm one of the many people who has never read that book, but it has heard, has heard enough about it <laughs> we've, to, to we've act like I have. We've been in this situation. We've worked at companies in which that's <laughs> happened, or we know people in that situation. And so, in this case, it's not you don't have a lateness of Instapaper, but when you think about how long it would take you to get someone up to speed, are you concerned that they would not stay long enough because anyone you might be able to get up to speed well enough would want to go and do their own thing? You know, I don't. I wouldn't even know how to start. I wouldn't even know where to find a person to hire. You know, like, because I've seen what happens if you if you post a job posting publicly. Uh, I've seen from other jobs where I, where I attempted to involve myself in such things. It's pretty hard to get through all the crap. And... You know the the best kind of hires I've ever made were people who approached me, who said, "Hey, I want it. you were one of them. Uh, my support guy with with Instapaper is one of them. Like it's people who said, "Hey, I want to do this job," and you know I considered it. And many times I say, "Sorry, you know I don't really have a job for that, or I can't afford to pay someone else to do that." But it, in the rare case, I've had something and had that need and decided, you know what, you you really want to do it. You seem like you, you're good. I'll give you a shot. And uh, that's fascinating. But if I had to actually like like go out and hire for a position, um, I'm not really sure how I would go about doing that in any kind of effective way. I mean, I would do it, and I, I would probably do it quite badly, and uh, it would probably take way more time than it should. And now I'm going to get all this email from recruiters and, and other people hiring <laughs> services. Oh, we can save you all you that trouble. Problem. Yeah, right. but it's you know uh, what's funny. I'll tell you this hilarious thing, which is I hired a plumber. I hired a plumber. It was hilarious. No, I'm sorry. I, hired a I wouldn't even know how to hire a plumber. I use Yelp. Yelp is within a sigma or so of being. Uh, it's it's accuracy is actually generally good. It tracks well, at least in Seattle, we have a sufficient thing. So I go to Yelp and I find a plumber who has thirty five star ratings, and I think this wow. is crazy. It must be forged, right? So I do the thing where you have to type in a, you have to click a thing at the bottom to show hidden reviews and do a captcha, and then it shows you the rest. The rest are also glowing, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I start looking at who reviewed. I'm like, could this be legitimate? They're all five star. So I call the guy. Our guy has this great website. You can book a time. I book him. It's he comes good. out and he does this. He does this great job for me. And it actually doesn't charge me because he can't do something. He comes back and does it later. Terrific guy. And I'm like, how did you get 35-star reviews? And he says, it's a curse. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the phone won't stop ringing. I can't <laughs> I disappoint everybody because the phone's ringing all the time. And here's the related problem. He's a great plumber, obviously. And he did a great job for me. Clearly, the reviews are all great. I've referred him to other people, all that. He can't hire an assistant. He's tried before. He can't hire anybody who can do work as well as he does. And so he's been trying to find a partner who could work alongside him, who has his own business where they'll merge it and be able to do work where they judge each other's competence more as peers. Interesting. But that might work for plumbers. Harder for programmers, though, I think. But, you know, we've seen some companies like that. There are certainly some small Mac developers where you get a couple people, you get two or three people together who are like-minded, and they all work as peers. They do, you know, an enormous amount of development side by side. But bringing someone in in that capacity seems very difficult. Well, and, and it's, often, it's often just not the right idea. Like, 
if you think about, you know, the, if you broaden a little bit and, and look at other media, how weird would it be if John Gruber hired another writer for a site? <laughs> you know, like that, like you can, anyone can look at the site and say, oh, that would be it. That would not work at all. It would be terrible for everybody involved. And that, that's just, that's not John Gruber and that's not Daring Fireball to do that. I feel like that's how I am with, with, my with my apps and my programming and my businesses in in most cases you know obviously like i do the podcast with friends because a podcast alone is really really hard to do and i can't do it um so or rather it's it's easy to do it's hard to do a good one yes (laughs) but you know for the most part i feel like that's how i am with my apps like i don't think there's anything wrong with one person doing something on their own and it's just you know, a lot of time, like a lot of contexts aren't right for that. One person probably is not going to be able to make their own web search engine that's competitive with Google, but one person can do an iOS app that does something relatively straightforward. Like that's that's not an unheard of thing, and that's one of the beauties of iOS and the App Store is that it makes all that work business wise, and it makes it all possible. Whereas before, you know, in the old world of of writing desktop software, you know, things were harder. You needed more people involved. It was, you know, there were more resources to get started. You needed to run your own website, run your own servers to host the thing, uh, somehow integrate with a payment processor or attempt to write your own, which was absolute hell. And, you know, there were all these moving parts and pieces involved and, and dependencies, or you had to try to get boxed software in a store, which was a nightmare. And, you know, now, now like one person can write an app and publish it to the App Store, and make a decent living. Let's pause for a moment so I can thank one of this week's sponsors. Bare Bones makes software I use every day, almost every minute of every day on my Macs. The company is about to celebrate its 20th anniversary, and its flagship product, BBEdit, is where I live. In fact, I wrote a script for this sponsorship in BBEdit, and I even wrote a book about it. It's a powerful tool for writing, programming, and processing text. You can write HTML and Markdown in it and preview the results. You can manage websites from it, work with version control systems, and probably land an airplane using one of its myriad options. But best of all, it's easy to use and it hides its power behind the scenes for when you need it. It's an application I recommend to writers and developers alike. BBEdit is only $50, and if you go to barebones.com, you can download a trial version that works for 30 days. Barebones also makes Text Wrangler a free edition alternative that has many of the same features, omitting those dedicated to HTML coding and software development. A lot of people graduate from Text Wrangler into BBEdit. So go to barebones.com and tell them, ponies, they'll understand. And now, back to the show. And it's a relatively small investment of time for, for a one-person shop. If you don't you know, scale up and have 10 people building a, you know, putting $2 million in building an app, if it's the kind of thing that one person can build, the investment is largely time, not money. I mean, that's been your experience, hasn't it? Oh, of course. And, and, you know, and the beauty of it, you, know, you, hear, you always hear stories from people who – I mean, obviously, there, there's, there's like the strike-it-rich you know, lottery-winning stories of the one app that sells a billion copies and, and makes some guy you know, a million bucks overnight or something like that. Um, and then you also Doodle Jump gets cited all the time because those right. guys came out with the perfect time, a simple app. It was addictive, and they did make they made like a million bucks, right? And they were sort of everyone seemed to come after. They would say, "Hey, Doodle Jump, Doodle Jump did it, right?" Or like you know, Clear the the to do list made like a few hundred thousand mm-hmm. bucks in, in its first couple of months. Um, you had uh, back in the olden days of the App Store, you had uh, what was the Scorched Earth clone? I I tank or man, I forget. It was like I tank. What was it? Uh, the, pocket tank, something like that. It was a. Uh, oh yeah. It was like it was a scorched earth clone for iOS. I forget exactly oh. the name of it. 
and uh, and and the guy did a bunch of interviews for that because he made he made you know a few hundred thousand dollars or something like that in uh, over over like six months or something like that and and that was like the the massive deal at the time there too and and so you hear these stories about the massive mega hits and then you also hear a whole bunch of developers saying they released some app and it didn't make them any money or it made them like a dollar a month or something and so you hear about these two extremes what you don't usually hear about are the people who are in the middle and. You know, I'm one of those people, and I've been one of those people with Instapaper, and it's great. Like, <laughs> you know, Instapaper is Instapaper is not Angry Birds. Uh, it, it will never be Angry Birds. You know, in in revenue. In fact, I would argue that probably nothing will ever be Angry Birds in revenue. Not even Angry Birds at this point, as exactly. they tried it too with new things and, and having got fired. Well, I was going to say, let's back up a little bit to that in the chronology. Is that uh, you? So you need a new, you need a job. You've made yourself obsolete. You've done well enough that they don't need you anymore. Pretty much, and you don't want to be in that job. And Instapaper is taking off. So you already had on the web side of things. Did you take advertising or have any kind of paid option up until the point that you left Tumblr? Um, I, I did put an ad from the deck on there. Uh, it was fairly late in the development of the site, though. For the most part, I, I forget exactly when that started, um, when the ad started. It was late, well, it though. Was, it was essentially it was very little, it was very little money coming in from it, but you had high traffic. When I left Tumblr, the, the most money by far came from the app sales. And that that has been the case. Oh, I'm sorry, right? Because I mean, that's why I'm getting the chronology wrong, right? Because you left in 2010. When did the uh, app get into the app store? Uh, there was a free app on like day two or three of the app store mm-hmm. in like July '08, and then um, I think in in August '08 or September, something like that, is when I launched the first paid version of the app. So it was it was almost at the beginning of the app store in in the fall of '08. And do I remember right? Is there a free? Did you kill the free version? Yeah, there was a free version for a while, and then I killed it. I, I started experimenting with like pulling it off the store for a month mm-hmm. to see what what would happen and everything, and then I eventually totally killed it about two years ago. And what was the thinking behind that? What did you find out from experimenting with taking it on and off the site? Well, I basically found out that sales didn't change. Oh, <laughs> oh! So you had development cycles going into something that benefited people who weren't paying customers, but it didn't change your paying customer base. Exactly, and 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 I think it and and occasionally the sales would actually go up slightly when I would take the free version down. And my thinking at the time was pretty much where I where I ended up with it uh, today, which is that having the free version in the store kind of diluted the value of the paid version in, in a lot of ways. And, it, you know, first of all, it gave people an option not to buy it. Mm-hmm. You know, when they would, they would hear about Instapaper or read about Instapaper and, and they would say, oh, I want to try that. So they'd go to the app store, they would search, and they'd get two options, free and paid. And, you know, if those are your two options, how many people are going to go right for the paid? I mean, I do because I'm a jerk, but most people don't. So, well, you look, you say, what's the difference? You say, I get it for free and I get, what, 10, you could store 10 articles at a right. time or something. And it was missing yeah. almost all of the good features. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but most people would look at that and they would rationalize it and they would say, well, let's just see what the free version is. I don't, you know, why pay if you don't have to? So they would try the free version and, then, and they would enjoy it. And the free version would tell them, oh, to get more than X or to get feature Y, you have to get the paid version. And then when you, when you present that kind of option to people... If the pain point isn't that bad, like if if I limited it to one article saved, that would be a pretty bad pain point. <laughs> but I lim- I play with different limits. I eventually landed on ten, and uh, because if that pain point isn't too bad, then people will be like, well, I guess I could just live with that. I, you know, I'll just live with the ten. That'll be fine. I don't need any more than that. They will try to rationalize not paying, and uh, not everyone, but certainly the majority. So. 
you end up with, and you see a very, very similar thing with apps that offer a free version with ads, and then you can pay some in-app purchase to remove the ads. And that never works very well mm-hmm. because, you know, any t- people, will, people will try to rationalize not paying and they're like, well, okay, I can tolerate looking at an ad. Who cares? So, and most people don't care. <laughs> and so. Yeah. Well, you, and eventually what's proven with advertising, in fact, it's funny because I think John Gruber, we're recording this a little bit before it airs, but John Gruber has a post in Daring Fireball today about effectiveness of advertising and, and kind of comments, yeah, I'm not sorry I n- you know, never went with the conventional advertising thing because you eliminate ads from your field of vision eventually unless they're so offensive that you stop using the thing because the ads are so offensive. Right. And, and I think on mobile, what we've seen so far, I mean, it's still very early in the, in the days to, to judge this, but I think what we've seen so far is that ads on mobile are not very effective and that right. many of the click-throughs are mistaken taps. <laughs> that just like you just missed what you were trying to hit with your finger <laughs> and uh and and the return rates are very very low for the advertisers uh the payment rates for the publishers are very very low uh it's it's just not a very good business so you know but but if you're if you if you're selling an app and trying to get people to upgrade most of them won't upgrade to the paid version you know like like a good conversion rate might be 10 or 15% and that that would be a very good conversion rate and for the most part that means 90% of your customers are only using the free version. And so when you add something great to the paid version or when you make some improvement to the paid version or you have some awesome feature, 90% of your users aren't seeing that. And you know, those 90% are judging what your app is and what your service is by what the free version is. You've also got this funny problem though, or maybe not a problem, but you've, you, you can use Instapaper without needing an app at all. So the demo version of Instapaper is the free web-based one. So having a free version reaches maybe a different audience, but that audience may not have ever discovered it anyway. So it's like, if you don't want to buy the paid version, you can go and use the website and you can look at it and see everything it does. And if it's useful for you, then you pay the, what is it now? Is it $4 and 99 cents? Yeah, it's $4 now. Yeah, $4. So you can pay the $4 in the app store. And I don't think, I think there's very, I don't say there's very few, but I think there are, I have a hard time thinking of sites except for things that sync news, like Net Newswire or something like that, or SS Reader, like Reader that used to use Google Reader on the back end. Um, there aren't that many apps in which you have an alternative that is either equally as good or gives you the way to test the full experience in a web environment on the desktop, for that matter. Right. So you didn't you didn't really need a free version then in the end at all, I guess. Right, and and all it was doing was. Uh, was competing with my paid version for sales and giving all these people a mistaken idea of what Instapaper is because they were missing most of the good features. And, and so it really, I, I figured it was not serving me well. You know, in the App Store, you have very, very low prices. You know, people expect just because in the desktop world, you've always had trials, or not always, but for a long time, you've had trials in the desktop world. And so people expected, well, there's applications on the desktop, and there's apps on my new phone, and applications have trials and demos, so apps should have trials and demos too. And I should be able to try something before I pay you know, $30 for it on the desktop. But in the App Store, it's not $30. In the App Store, it's $3, or it's, it's, it's $1. Right, and, to get people through the door. And, and there's plenty of types of things in the world that we happily will pay a few dollars for without trying them and without easy refunds. One example, a great example of that is just getting like a dessert at a restaurant. You know, like 
I mean, yeah, if if you really want a bitch and wine, you can get your your $4 chocolate cake refunded if you didn't like it. But for the most part, nobody does that. And, and you know, you're willing to spend that $4 on that chocolate cake because it sounds good. And you know from previous chocolate cakes, you'll probably like it. There's some chance that you won't. There's some chance you'll decide that wasn't really worth $4. But you pay the $4 for the, for the chance, mm-hmm. and you try it out. You give it a shot. When apps are as cheap as they are now, they're in that range. And, and not everybody agrees with that statement, certainly. You know, whenever, whenever you launch anything, any kind of paid app with no free version, as I can now tell you, uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of people will complain and say, I, I will never, I'll never buy the app without being able to try it first. Um, and that's actually how a lot of people excuse piracy on jailbroken phones as well. I, I always believe I have to try it before I buy it. And of course, they never do actually buy it. And now you're going to get email from the three people who claim they do. But <laughs> Well, you brought this up, I think, uh, very interestingly on your blog with uh, Game of Thrones and people complaining about oh, being yeah. unable to get it in a digital form that they wanted. So that justified them being able to take it now because it, they couldn't pay for it, which has kind of been the justification people engaged in with music piracy uh, you know, back. <laughs> Back into the 90s was that if you don't give me a way to pay for it, I'll just take it because you're you're taking something away from me. I, I thought your essay you provoked a fair amount of discussion and anger. As as with a lot of things that I think you stake out as a, a reasonable position stated clearly, people get angry about that because I, don't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't quite figure out why. Because I'm like I'm reading this and I'm like I may disagree with a little bit of this. I agree with others, but in any case, I'm sorry. But so that so that essay. Uh, I think your point was, or you should, you should tell me your point, is that uh, uh, had to do with entitlement. Right. Is that it, right? That you that is what people think they're owed. Right. Yeah. My point was basi- with that was basically like, yeah, you can pirate something. I'm not going to stop you from pirating things, but don't try to justify it as some kind of like moral right. You know, like just just admit it. You're pirating it. Like, come on. Like, you know, own it. You know, if if you're gonna if you're gonna copy something illegally and, and you know and without paying for it, like at least admit what you're doing. You know, I'm not going to tell you you don't pirate anything ever. I, I can't, I, I pirate things occasionally. Like, I'm not going to say that, but I will say, you know, I'm not going to try to, ex- like when I do it, I'm not going to excuse it as, oh, well, I have to pirate this or I'm entitled to pirate this because of X, Y, or Z factors. Uh, you know, just, you're pirating it. Own that. <laughs> That's right. And that was, uh, you know, Game of Thrones is still, is that same, uh, that, that argument there is that you can wait to watch Game of Thrones. It'll become cheaper and cheaper. Eventually, you'll get out of the library as a set of DVDs. No one's going to prevent you from doing that. It's that you want it now. Right. And, and, and you don't feel like paying for it. <laughs> you know, like, exactly. Like, if it's available in some other way that, then, and you don't feel like paying for it, well, then just admit you don't feel like paying for it. If it's not available in your country or it's not available on, in the medium you want yet, well, then admit that you're either being impatient or you're refusing to acknowledge the restrictions. Like it's, you know, whatever, whatever the case, it's like it's not some kind of moral right that you, you get to choose your own price and availability date and format. It's up to the publisher what they want to offer it in. And if they don't want to support you, well, then, you know, fine. Then, then show them, right. then vote with uh, your attention and, and don't watch the, their stuff and don't support their stuff and don't talk right. on Twitter about their stuff. And that, you know, that's, that's way more effective a protest <laughs> than just pirating it. Well, neither Instapaper nor Game of Thrones will cure your cancer. So <laughs> there's probably, it's hard to justify as opposed to say, you know, patents and drugs in India and situations like that. Sure, there are exactly. different issues about intellectual property in different cases, but yeah. you know, it's not life and death. No, nobody you, needs to watch a particular TV show. 
that's right. Some people believe they do. So Instapaper winds up taking over your life then. And uh, this is something I was talking about earlier on the podcast and before the podcast is that, uh, you know, A, you've got a, you have a broad and searching mind. So that's part of it. And B, I mean, that explains part of the genesis of Instapaper is there a lot of stuff you wanted to read. You weren't sitting there reading programming manuals on the train. You wanted to read news and stuff and feature articles and so forth. And it seems that you followed a lot of different paths at once. You know, I'm looking at what's funny. I'm looking at your blog right now. And like the last three things on it are accidental tech podcasts, the neutral last episode of the neutral podcast and mag- the magazine's latest issue are your three posts. And I'm thinking, well, that's sort of perfect. And then there's the blog itself is that not only doing Instapaper, which was a, you know, a commercial thing and something obviously you enjoy and feel proud of and, and have developed its direction and everything yourself. But your separate efforts, um, Build and Analyze, a couple years ago came out of that as well, didn't it? That uh, on the 5x5 network, you did two years of this show. Why devote your time to, uh, as I ask you on a podcast, why devote your time to that podcast even as you're ramping Instapaper up? Well, because quite honestly, I get bored if I do one thing all the time. You know, like I... Mm-hmm. I've, one of the reasons why I've never wanted to work for a big company and and why when I have like done occasional things for or with a big company, it usually is what what they would probably describe as a cultural misfit. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the big reasons why I don't, I don't uh, fit into that world very well is because the bigger the company, generally speaking, uh, the more narrow each person's job description becomes. And so by being... A software engineer at Tumblr, you know, b- uh, the lead developer of nobody, uh, <laughs> but by being by being a developer at, at this company that only had at the beginning two people in it, I got to do mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff as well. And and I wasn't just working on this middle portion of the infrastructure. I was doing the servers, and I was doing the database, and I was doing the backend, and I was doing the middle and the caching layers and everything else. I did. I even did some of the front end stuff. You know, if you find anything really ugly, I probably did that. You know, so <laughs> I even like I was doing so much because it was a small company, and that enabled me to do that. And so you know, and I I always had this blog on the side, so I could I was also being a writer on the side, and. Then when the opportunity came to do a podcast, I jumped on it because I've always I had always wanted to do a podcast, and so I was like, "Oh, great! Let me do that too." Well, you love radio too, even despite your age. You actually love radio. Absolutely, yeah. I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. Uh, I've listened to radio for a very long time. I mean, when I was a little kid, I made like little fake radio shows with my friends, taped onto cassette tapes. I mean, you know, it's I've always I've always enjoyed this. I've always loved the medium, and it's great that you know I'm I'm not a very good speaker by any means, and yet. The internet allows me to do this, and that's awesome. <laughs> well, we got to find our audience, right? Is that it's the people? It's like whatever message we have to say, the people who are interested in hearing it can find us, as opposed to having to get a platform where we have to talk to a million people in order, you know, and and be able to convince producers and all the the overhead of that to let us try to talk to a million people. Right, and there's enough demand and enough distribution mechanisms in place so that. You know, there aren't just a hundred talk radio hosts around the country anymore. Now there's millions of people who can and do create their own stuff and find an audience with it, and it works for them. Thank God for commutes. What would we do without people having commutes? That's a good question. I don't have, I don't have one, and you don't have one. So I know. Well, now, like, I listen to so many podcasts <laughs> now because I have a dog. And it's great when you're walking the dog, you got headphones in. And now, now that I, like, the dog got me really, like, rehooked on podcasts. That's funny. And then, because, uh, like, before it was like, all right, when, when I didn't have, when, when I had a job at Tumblr, I would read on the train, and then I'd get out of the train and walk the rest of the way 
from Grand Central to the office. And that was like a good, you know, 15 minute walk. So I would have reading material on the train, get out and walk with podcasts. And then when I didn't go to go to Tumblr anymore every day, now I have to like find, I have to like cram time to read into my life because it doesn't occur naturally in most, in most cases anymore. Like I'll read like, you know, in a waiting room or in a line somewhere, but day to day, I don't have as much that anymore. And I'm able to listen to tons of podcasts because I walk a dog and I drive a little short errands. Like I'll drive to go grocery shopping or pick up lunch and I'll play a podcast in the car for the 15 minutes on the way to the store. Yeah, this is funny. I'm at the point uh, – for years I was listening to a few – there were a couple regular podcasts I listened to that were internet only. And most of the ones I listened to were you know public radio or something like that. And then I sort of – and only dropped off a little bit. And now in the last year – I don't have a commute at all. I work in my basement. I'm talking to you from the luxurious basement at the Fleischman Mansion. <laughs> and I, uh, I, but I've got so many podcasts now. I actually invent errands in times and at night sometimes I'll take some time and listen to a podcast and do nothing else. I know it's crazy. It's not wow. in the middle of doing something else. I know it's weird. But well, at least like put I, headphones I, on and wash the dishes or something. Well, there's, there's that too, but it's the, uh, I, you know, I actually, even with all the tasks I have, I have so many podcasts I like right now. I think we're in the middle of a little renaissance of new, interesting things happening. This is into the realm of, uh, we're just talking about with build and analyze that ran for uh, over two years and, towards the end of it, that's when you had started work on, on the magazine, which we'll get to. But th- there's this notion, people were very upset when it ended. And, you know, same, you know, talk show moved to, from 5x5 to Mule Radio. Uh, you ended your podcast, John Syracuse ended his podcast. And there, you know, I know there's, I don't wanna, there's like, everybody wants a, a drama here. But I know there's times when things come to an end. Build and analyze, two years of that, did you feel like, I mean, the topics, at some point, do you feel like you have nothing left to say? Pretty much. You know, not like, not an absolute thing, but but you could but the tell... But weekly, the weekly thing and the expectation of having something every week. Right. And, and you could tell, like, at the time, most people were very upset that I was ending it, and most people I heard from. But, you know, if you listen to the last, like, couple of months' worth of Build and Analyze episodes compare them to the earlier episodes and it's very obvious that they aren't as good. It's very like it was very obvious to me looking at it as objectively as I could that the quality was just going down and it or or, or it had plateaued and was about to fall significantly. And a few people were like perceptive and honest enough to tell me, "You know what? You're right." Like <laughs> this is this was a good time to end it. Uh, but you know, it's, it's hard to see that when you're, when you're really into it. Thanks for listening to the first of two parts of my interview with Marco Arment. In part two, we get into podcasting, owning things yourself, the magazine, and more. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.